So we want to go to the, God's Word now, and so open up your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter 4 and verse 12. Now, if you need a Bible, the Pew Bible is there, and you can find it on page 1077. And if you don't have an English Bible at home, you need one. And so stop by the Connect Corner after the service. One of our hosts there will give you a Bible for free. Well, today's sermon is called Rejoicing During the Fiery Ordeal. And we need to pray before we get going, so let's do that now. Oh, Father in heaven, we are so amazed by your graciousness to us, to Naomi, to Christian, to their families, that they have come from death to life, nothing of their own works, their own intelligence. It was simply your grace upon them. We also come to your word now just with awe, with gratitude that we have this revelation, a very special, specific word to us. And we know there's nothing like it. We know that it is essential that we need it for growing to be like Christ. We know that people cannot come to salvation in Christ apart from hearing the word of God preached. And so I pray you would use it today for this purpose. We're going to be coming to your table in a bit to celebrate communion. And I just use this time, Father, to prepare us for that because we want to come in a manner worthy of you. And so I pray your spirit would be free to convict us of sin even as we are here listening and we'd be quick in our own minds and hearts to turn from that and to follow after you. And give us also, Lord, the the ability to behold Christ today, whether it's here in the word or there at the table with the cup and the juice or the cup and the bread. And I just pray that our faith would increase and be determined to follow after him. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. It was 1563, and John Fox published his book called The Book of Martyrs. And it it told the stories, the true stories of mainly English and Scottish Christians who had been killed because they were Christians during this time and before. And this book really served to build up the resolve of many Christians to follow Christ. Now, I've read good portions of Fox's Book of Martyrs. There are great modern translations or versions of it that you can read. And I think an experience I've had is not uncommon to many people. You read these accounts, and first of all, you're amazed at the faithfulness, the the boldness. But then you start asking questions like, how could they remain strong under such pressure, even to the point of death? And then you're amazed, how could they sing and praise God even as they're being ready to be executed? And you wonder, how could they forgive their enemies so readily when they're saying goodbye to their wife and children and leaving them in a time in which to not have a husband was almost a sentence to to poverty? And you wonder, what would I do in that situation? Do I have the faith that it would take? Well, today, Peter is going to show us how we can develop that faith, that mindset. So when opposition comes, whether it's a a peer on which you'll be burned or just you'll face the opposition of your peers in life and you'll be able to stand firm because God has given us his word that you might stand firm in it. So we're going to start by reading it together, this passage, and I just invite you to stand with me and follow along. I'm going to be reading 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19, and this is Holy Scripture. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, he says, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you, as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. 
If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? And if a righteous person is saved with great difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing good. Oh, the commandment of the Lord is pure and it enlightens the spiritual eyes. So welcome it today. You may be seated. So today we're just going to be looking at the first three verses, verses 12 through 14. And here's the big idea for these verses. They show how we can have three mindsets that are necessary so that we will joyfully stand firm during a fiery trial. Three mindsets so that you will joyfully stand firm. So here's the first one, that we'd be expectant of trials in verse 12, that we'd be exuberant in trials in verse 13, and that we would trust that we'll be exalted through trials in verse 14. So as we come to this part of 1 Peter, just to give you the lay of the land here, Peter's beginning his third major section of this letter. So the first section was in chapter 1, 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. And there he's showing how true grace creates God's people. It creates God's people. The second section is chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 4, 11, and it shows how God's grace carries God's people. And now he's beginning the third section, the final one, on how true grace confirms God's people. So the whole letter is laid out in those three sections that creates God's people, it carries God's people, and now we're seeing how it confirms God's people. So as we come to the beginning of this final section, look at how he introduces this mindset, the ex- being expectant of the trials. And look at verse 12. He says, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. I love the way that Peter starts. He's a, a tough fisherman. He lived a tough life. He knew what it was like to have bad days fishing, great catches, and he's hardly the kind of man that you think would be affectionate and say, dear friends. And yet even that doesn't quite get to what he's communicating. It might be better said, oh, beloved, precious ones. I mean, can you imagine that burly fisherman looking you in the eye and putting his hand on, his, on your shoulder and saying, oh, my, my precious daughter. That's what Peter's doing. And as he says this, he's expressing tenderness, compassion. He's showing affectionate care. But the beloved also reminds us there's a greater love beyond even the apostle Peter. He's pointing to the fact that you, Christian, are beloved by God. That God has matchless affections for you. And this is really important because what he's about to say could come across as insensitive, as Short, But he wants to say, everything after this is tainted with this compassion and affection. I want you to hear that. Because they're going to hear about a time of suffering is upon them. And it's designed by God. But it doesn't mean that you're angering God or he's annoyed with you. It doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. Rather, it assures us that God's love for you will not diminish. It's even greater than the Apostle Peter's. 
So he begins with this command right out of the gates. He said, don't be surprised. In chapter 4, verse 4, just a few verses before this, he said, unbelievers were surprised by the believers. He pointed out that they were shocked that Christians aren't going with them into these wild parties anymore. They don't join in in the same sins. And they were surprised, but he's saying, you Christian, don't be surprised when they turn on you, when they come after you, when they ridicule you and mock you, because they're, they're by nature hostile to truth. They're by nature children of wrath. Or the Bible says that unbelievers are children of the devil. They walk in his ways. And so the command is preparing us for expected trials. They're going to come. Now, Peter knew this personally. He had heard Jesus teach on this. In fact, it was only a couple hours before Jesus himself would be betrayed, arrested, mocked, lied about, beaten. And in John 15, just two hours before that, before his fiery ordeal began, Jesus said this, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who has sent me. Now, Peter's been a Christian for about 35 years at this point, And Peter knew this was true. If you listen today to the best life now theologians, they're, they're the false teachers, that poisonous movement called the word of faith then what you'll expect is a life of material blessing, of financial benefits, of divine protection. But this will make no sense to you what Jesus says. The, on the contrary to those people who teach that, the Bible says that Christians should expect to be hated, to be scorned, to be insulted. But in spite of the command, in spite of the things that Jesus said, aren't we surprised when people do turn on us? It doesn't make sense to us. How could they not want to know about the one who is the way, the truth, and the life? The one through whom you can have forgiveness from all your sins and eternal life with God forever. Oh, it doesn't make sense to us. And yet there's something in them that isn't merely allergic to our faith. They hate it to the core of their being. Now, many times when these trials come, we seek to get out of it as quickly as possible, to go back to life as we know it to be normally. But this is unusual. The time we have here in England and in the Western world, we've had a, a relatively peaceful time for a couple hundred years, but that is abnormal. It's abnormal even now for the majority of Christians in the world. They face constant persecution. More people have been killed for their faith in Jesus Christ in the last 100 years than all the 2,000 years before that. Things are getting worse for Christians, but we don't understand that here because we live in a country in which society has been shaped by Christianity thanks to those who have gone before us. So our experience of peace is actually abnormal. What we think is normal, the world has no concept of, the world of the Christianity. So when this opposition comes, we, we are surprised, but we shouldn't be because we're told this. But sometimes we're surprised by who it comes from, the intensity of it. But this idea of a fiery ordeal is very broad. It can come in a physical, it can come in verbal, it can come in emotional assaults. 
we're oftentimes caught off guard though, aren't we? But it, it tends to be subtle. I think for many of us, when it comes, it's, it's something subtle like you get passed over for a promotion because perhaps you were too verbal, vocal about your faith in Christ. Friends at school start turning on you. They don't invite you to things. Don't be surprised. People might oppose you for speaking out against an evil or speaking up for righteousness. Don't be surprised. Family members may treat you like a fool. They may scorn you and they may uninvite you to family events. Don't be surprised, Peter says. Because here's how it works. Righteousness in us has the effect of exposing sin in other people. And their consciences feel that exposure. What happens is it reveals the guilt that's upon them and the shame that they have for that. And so they do what comes most naturally. Shut off the light. Get rid of that. Remove the righteous person away. Because what they want to do is what they love to do. They want to keep sinning. And if I can stop that and mute it, then I won't feel as bad continuing on in my rebellion against God. But Peter says, when they turn against you, it can be a fiery ordeal. And that, it shows us how intense it can be. Now, an ordeal is like a test or a trial. And you're not being tested so God can find out, do you really believe? God knows. But it's to show you what's in you. It's a, a refining fire that's meant to burn off the impurities. It, it's to show you where, in fact, you are not following Christ fully. Now, even if it's not happening to you, to see it happening to those who are close to you can be really sobering. And it causes you to think, do I follow Christ? Would I stand if it comes to my door? Now, there are really two purposes of fiery trial. The first is to expose a false faith. So people will identify with Christ for a variety of reasons. They, they like the friendships they can have with other Christians. They like the emotions that they can feel in a, a service. They, they might like the conservative values they, they find among people in church. But the fact is the church has always had and always will have people who think they are Christians, but in fact, they've never repented of their sins. They've never trusted in Christ. They're not treasuring Christ above all. And friend, I have to ask you, is that you? Are, are you trusting in Christ today? Or is he just merely someone that you're using to get something else that you want? Have you abandoned your life and put yourself under the submission of Jesus Christ? Jesus talked about this kind of a person. He, he described it as a person with a heart that's like a rocky ground. He described that the soil was sown upon by the gospel like a seed. So Matthew 13, he describes it this way. Other seed fell upon rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun arose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. You see, the response they had to the gospel was shallow. It was inadequate. And so God uses a scorching sun, the, the trials of life that come through persecution to expose a false faith. And this is so gracious. Because if you realize, I don't actually believe I want to abandon Christ. He's giving you an opportunity then and there to say, but I will turn from that rebellion and I will follow Christ. Believe on Christ so fiery trials will expose a false faith, but they also encourage those who have a legitimate faith. It shows you that faith is real because it remains even after a scorching sun. Romans 5, 3-5 talks about what is God accomplishing in those who have faith through a scorching sun. It's a purposeful, loving, 
plan of the Lord. Romans 5.3 starts out, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God is in control of that test. The ones who come against you will not go one minute longer or make it more intense than what God has determined. The reality is, believer, we have indwelling sin and it is dangerous. It threatens your present and your eternal joy. I love how a 19th century Bible commentator wrote about this, the fiery trial. He said, the Lord makes the world displeasing to his own so that they may turn to him and seek all their consolation in him. You see, the the heat of the fire, it dries up our love and affection for the things of the world. For that, we can be grateful, even if it is a fiery ordeal. So these things should not be strange to us. It's been there since the first days of the church. It's the normal way that God deepens faith. It's the normal way that he increases joy. He builds his church almost always more strongly through persecution. Now, from a public relations perspective, this looks really bad. I think if you had a a marketing expert, they would say, hey, maximize the benefits and minimize the hardships. Just kind of leave those off to the side as a, a footnote. But that's not the way that Jesus functions. Remember what he said in John 15, verse 20. He said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. He talked openly about it. And so if you're coming to Christ again for an easy life, you're not born again. What the soul does that is given faith to believe, it it looks to Christ and it says, this is so amazing. I want to follow Christ the rest of my life because in him I have forgiveness of my sins. God's wrath is removed off my head and I could have the promise of eternal life with him. And so in faith you cling to Christ regardless of what's going to come because you know in him alone you have the hope of joy. So it does help to know that suffering is a normal part of life. It doesn't mean it's going to be there for your entire life. But when it comes, it's part of God's good design. Because through it, God is proving the genuineness of the faith that he has given to you. And really, only a genuine Christian can look back at those times and say, thank you, God, for how you preserved me in that time. And it helps us to submit to God more and more through greater things. Now, when you go public with your love and loyalty for Jesus Christ, like we saw today in baptism, expect that there will be a spiritual enemy who will not appreciate that. The Bible talks about three enemies that we have, the world, our own flesh, and the devil. Expect that these are going to conspire together to try to take you out, to try to make you look foolish. Believer, even if you were baptized and you've fail, you fall into sin, Christ is ready to forgive you again, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So this first mindset, you can see how crucial it is to help you stand firm. Be expecting trials. Now I want you to notice a second mindset. It's being exuberant in trials. I have to ask you, does that sound like a paradox? Can both those things be true, being exuberant in a trial? Well, he says it right here. It's not me. It's Peter in verse 13. He says, indeed, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ. So instead of being surprised, choose to rejoice. Battle that bewilderment by rejoicing in God's eternal benefits that will come through that trial. 
Now, you are to rejoice as you share in Christ's sufferings, or rejoice to the degree in which you suffer in the same way as Christ. So as the sufferings increase, let your rejoicing increase with it. Because there's a benefit that's going to outmatch any pain that's coming through that trial. So specifically, he's talking about as you share in the sufferings of Christ. And sharing means to have a deep fellowship, a close relationship. You are partnering in the same kinds of suffering that Christ endured. So like him, at the hands of sinners, you're going to feel hostility. You're going to feel the mocking. You're going to feel the unkind remarks, the the looks. But you will rejoice at the privilege of representing Christ and not in the pain. And as, as you suffer because you are identifying with Christ, then you enter into the same experience that our Lord had. And as you do that, it confirms you belong to Christ because other people are saying, yeah, you, you smell like a Christian and I don't like that. The Bible talks about the fragrance we have is of life to those who are being saved and it's a fragrance of death to those who are in a rebellion to God. And they won't like that. They're going to turn away and you can say, oh, that must mean they see Christ in me. That means they see me as one of his and that can confirm there's something in you that is real. Even the hostility will confirm that. Now, before this does happen to you, it's a time to lock truths into your heart. Truths like Philippians 1.29. He says, Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Just as the faith that you used to believe in Christ and be saved from God's judgment was given to you by God, so suffering is granted to you to make you more like the Savior. And so what your enemies intend for your harm, God intends that same harm to actually make you more like your Savior. Now think about what we just see in Christ merely in his crucifixion. There he is on the cross, not just the physical pain, but the weight of the sin coming upon him, the the punishment for our sins. Consider his resolve to glorify God even as a slander and abuse continued. Suffering will make you like that, believer. Or consider his forgiveness as he prays for those who are doing this to him. Your trials, believer, will make you able to forgive as well. Consider his compassion he had to the thief who moments before had been abusing him and railing against him. Believer, the suffering that you experience like Christ will enable you to do the same thing and have compassion on the ones who are seeking to destroy you. This godliness has been formed in you because of the trials, because of the suffering. That is, if your suffering is for the same reason as Christ. Now, 30 years before this, Peter knew this wasn't just a theory. He lived this. He had been arrested with the other apostles for preaching about Jesus. Acts chapter 5, it talks about it. In verse 28, the authorities have them there at the trial, and they, they remind them what they had ordered the disciples to do previously. They said, we strictly charged you not to teach in that name. And then to compel obedience in Acts 5, verse 40, it says, the leaders beat them, charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. What's astounding is their response to that. Listen, Acts 5, verses 41 and 42. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. 
So when Peter says this in verse 13, he knows what he's talking about. It wasn't just theoretical. He lived this and experienced imprisonment time and time again. You could consider the Apostle Paul and what he endured. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. Listen to some of what Paul endured for following Christ. Five times I received 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned and left for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, from robbers, from my own people, from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And Paul said, this is my badge of honor. This shows that I am his and I love knowing that. One pastor commented about this by saying, it's like Paul pulled up a shirt and he said, I want you to see my trophy case. See the scar right here? That's when I was affirmed to be a Christian when they beat me for this. He says, I bear in my body the marks that should have been given to Jesus Christ, but they are given to me instead. This, this is how Paul while he's in prison, could say to the Christians in Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. What an incredible mindset that they have and it was developed because they knew Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting, it's at this point in the original text that Peter says, after all this, keep on rejoicing. It's present tense. It's ongoing. It's meant to be not an isolated incident. We're supposed to be the most joyful people in the world because of what we have in Christ. Rejoice now. Keep on rejoicing even when the persecution comes. And the more the suffering, the deeper our rejoicing can be. This is because the ground for our rejoicing isn't in the suffering itself, but it's in the fellowship we have with Christ. And the ability to rejoice begins by remembering what Jesus taught. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you and falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Did you hear? Both Peter and Jesus are speaking about suffering on Christ's account. Not because you're grouchy and are a bad neighbor. It's because you identify with Christ. Because the fruit of the Spirit are being born in you. And people are reacting against that. But Jesus said, your rejoicing is rooted in a future reward. Your reward is great in heaven. It's the same thing he talks about. The author talks about in Hebrews 12 verse 2. He says, Jesus endured the suffering on the cross. How? For the joy that was set before him. That's that reward that we're supposed to look to. Now, you're not going to rejoice if you're looking at the pain, the things that you're losing. The rejoicing is tied to trusting God to keep his promise to give you a great reward. That, that's the joy that's set before you. So your ability to rejoice is tied to fixing your eyes on Christ in the scripture. Building yourself up in the truth while the times are good. But here's the reality, beloved. Rejoicing is always a choice. It has nothing to do with your circumstances. It has everything to do with you cho choosing to delight yourself in the Lord. Now, if God has given you the faith necessary for salvation, you, you know he's giving you the faith necessary to rejoice in a trial. 
God is sovereign over your trials. If you believe that, you can step into those moments trusting God. And then your capacity to rejoice in God's future great reward will just grow. Now look at the reason why we're here to do this. Look back at verse 13. So that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. So there's a connection here. The degree to which you rejoice now will indicate the degree in which you will rejoice then. So your capacity for eternal joy is directly tied to your capacity to rejoice now. Now, I encourage you, work on your rejoicing heart while things are going well, but also work on it when things are hard, they're coming against you, because that makes your capacity to enjoy God all that much greater when you stand before him in glory. Little capacity now means little capacity in the future. I don't want to miss all that God has in me and receive his delight I want to be able to handle as much of that as I possibly can. I want to work on that now. So stretch yourself now by learning to rejoice. Cultivate contentment. Paul talked about this. We have by Jesus Christ the strength to do all things in him. And he was talking specifically about the strength to be content in any circumstance. Choose to praise God. Choose to be grateful. Focus on the promises of God. That's how we do this. Jesus said, similarly, Luke 6, verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, revile you, and spurn you on account of me. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great. So looking at the future reward can enable you to leap for joy even now. That's astounding. And it's going to come when his glory is revealed. The first time that Christ came, it was veiled in a small baby who was laid in a manger. It was veiled even as he hung on the cross, died, it was put in a tomb. When he ascended into heaven, he was glorified, but his glory is now veiled from the world. But he's coming back, and he'll come with unveiled glory. The world will see it. And for the believer, it's our day of great rejoicing. But friend, if you do not long for that day, it's going to be a day of horror and terror. We're warned about this. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7 through 10. If you are not trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, this is what you'll expect when his glory is revealed. He will come from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On that day, only those who know Christ will enter into eternal joy. But if you do not know Christ, you'll never have joy again. I plead with you, friend, have you received Christ? Have you turned to him today? Today's a great day to put your faith in Christ. So these are the first two mindsets. Being expectant of trials, being exuberant in trials. The third mindset we're going to save and combine with our our text for next week, but we have something to look forward to. God's trials, through them, he will exalt you at his right hand at the proper time, in front of your enemies. They will be ashamed and you will stand blessed before the Lord. And how God does that is amazing. And I want you to see that more clearly. So I want to invite the, the music team to come back up here. And as we get ready to transition to the Lord's table, we remember his suffering was for your sake. It was 
in your place. The suffering wasn't nearly the nails in his hands and the, the thorn of, crown of thorns on his head. It was enduring the righteous judgment of God so that you wouldn't have to. So as we sing and prepare ourselves by remembering that old rugged cross, we can prepare ourselves to come to the table with joy, remembering what Christ has done for us, but also trembling. He did that for our sake and for our eternal joy. So let's prepare ourselves and sing now.